Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. California grows more food than any other state in the nation. But very, very few of those crops are harvested on a traditional family farm. It's hard for small-scale farmers to compete with ag giants. Plus, climate change and rising costs are making farming harder and harder in our state. But a few resilient family farmers are making it work. I'm Leslie McClurg, in this week for Sasha Coca. It's the California Report magazine. On today's show, we're traveling to Fresno and San Jose to meet family farmers working small plots, using methods handed down for generations. Back in 1977, there was only one Hmong family living in Fresno. And then within a few decades, that community ballooned to 35,000 residents. They were refugees from war-torn Vietnam and Laos. This is the battlefield in Laos. These are government troops supported and financed by the United States, fighting and losing ground to communist troops, many of them from North Vietnam. When the war ended, thousands of people were resettled in California, in the Central Valley, as part of the U.S. State Department relocation program. The last American helicopter on the roof of the American embassy prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees fleeing before the advancing communist armies. Among those who landed in the U.S. is a woman named Ia Mua. She, along with her husband and her eight children, arrived in 1993. They couldn't read, write, or speak English. And they were quite adrift in California until the day Ia decided to put down $100 on 10 rows of cropland, just on the outskirts of Fresno, to grow mong rice, a grain really unlike anything available at the grocery store. The rice was a medium for memory a spiritual bridge on which her heart could walk across all that longing and return to when she was with Seven years ago, Lisa Hamilton, a California author, met Ia in a rice field, and then the two of them sparked a really immediate friendship that grew into a book chronicling Ia's life, The Hungry Season, A Journey of War, Love, and Survival. And it traces Ia's journey from a tiny, tiny village in Laos to where she eventually landed in the Central Valley in California. Hamilton writes about agriculture and rural communities all around the world. Her first book was called Deeply Rooted, Unconventional Farmers in the Age of Agribusiness. When you started this book, you were actually going to write a very different book about rice. And then you met Ia when you were working in the Central Valley on that project. So what was it about Ia that inspired you to ditch that book and then start a new book? You're right. I had begun this project intending to write a book about rice, and I was sort of searching the world over for the human story that could embody that larger story of rice. 
I had been looking all over the world in India, following a story in Sierra Leone. I'd never thought to look in California for a human story about rice, since rice here has grown on such a large industrial scale. At some point, a farmer friend of mine up in Madeira told me that he had seen rice growing in a community garden in the city of Fresno. I followed that thread. I learned that there is this whole network of um, Hmong farmers, particularly women, particularly elderly women like Ia, growing rice in the Central Valley and really across the United States. And one day I was at the farm visiting a different farmer, and Ia approached me and also the interpreter who I was working with and said, if you guys ever want to come talk to me, I've got some stories to tell. And I was immediately intrigued. We came and visited her the next week. And after that, the book sort of effortlessly became about Ia. The rice sort of receded into the background, and Ia's story became the focus. This is Ia in one of the many recordings you made as you spent six years following and working alongside her in the fields, learning her story. Ia was born in 1964, by which time there were already... Um, decades worth of conflict in Laos. So she was born into that country that was on fire, the where death by violence was a norm. And so um, growing up, she knew nothing but conflict. When the war ended in 1975, the Americans left. The Hmong who had allied with them within the war were left to suffer the retribution of this new communist government um, who had been their enemy in the war. Ia and families like hers tried to hunker down in the mountains where they lived and just hold on and hope that somehow life would return to normal. It didn't. It just got worse worse in many cases than the war. And when the violence, the persecution, and the displacement got too much, she and many people like her left. Um, more than 100,000 Hmong from Laos fled over the border into Thailand and ended up in refugee camps there. And just if we pause in, in Thailand, where she spent 15 years in a refugee camp when she arrived, I think she was she a teenager. Was she 15? Yeah, she was 15 and um, nine months pregnant. And then she has this baby in an alley. And then within weeks, the baby is in her arms, starving to death. Uh, which is just such a poignant moment in the book. And somehow from there, this 15-year-old and this baby eventually build a life, but it's a hard life. I think the only way to really understand what drew me to telling Ia's story is this um, persistence and this tenacity that she has going from really, you know, starting with so little and then really losing everything that she loves and getting to that point of destitution that you reference of being on a bus going to a new refugee camp, 15 years old with a baby in her arms, um, just on the edge of death. From there, she she built back. Uh, she didn't rebuild the life that she had lost, but she built something new and arguably 
better. In the refugee camp in Thailand, one of the first breaks she got was getting into the business of making tofu. So the aid organizations would pay for tofu to give to pregnant women in the hospitals there. And this is big business. And Ia was like, I'm getting in there. But the work itself was grueling. And so here's a passage about that. Increasingly, Ia found herself making tofu alone. She became pregnant again, even as she still tended to an ailing toddler whose incessant cries were comforted only by riding on Ia's back. There the toddler lay, against her in a slick of sweat through the humid months, soaking her back as he peed, diapers being an unthinkable indulgence. Ia tried boiling the vat of soybeans that were the tofu's raw material, but when she leaned over, the steam burned the child and set him howling in her ear. When her father-in-law shouted to take the noisy thing away so he could smoke his opium in peace, she would leave the house without anywhere to go. Such incredible visual writing. So Ia is in this refugee camp, and her family grows quite a bit over the next 15 years. She eventually has a total of eight children there in the refugee camp. And then all 10 of them, her and her husband and her and her children, get on a plane to Fresno. Here's Ia talking to you about how awful that trip was. She had really horrific motion sickness on her first flight. And in that moment where her family decides to go to the U.S., they did have a choice. They could have gone back to Laos. Why do you think she chose California? As Ia described it to me, going back to Laos would have been a return to a life that she no longer wanted to live. She wanted to move forward and going to the United States, even though there were terrible stories, horror stories about what might happen there, even though it was a totally unknown place, she had a feeling inside of her that there was more of what she wanted in moving forward than in trying to move backward to Laos and try to hold on to this dream of somehow winning the war, winning the country back, and finding peace. And yet, when her family lands in Fresno, she decides in, in, in a pretty visceral way to reach back to her country by planting rice. She took the opportunity to grow just 10 rows, just a little bit, just for her family. And it reignited something in her. It reconnected something in her to all those things um, that she had been missing. Can you read a passage yeah, that sure. kind of illustrates that? Mm -hmm. This is talking about the harvest time um, here in Fresno on Ia's farm. She grew her farm from those initial 10 rows to... Uh, having up to five acres of rice at the most, uh, all of which she farms by hand, which is an enormous amount of work. The rice was a medium for memory, a spiritual bridge on which her heart could walk across all that longing and return to when she was with them both in person. It happened when the first green shoots poked through the soil, then when the leaves grew thick and wind rushed through them, 
when the plants miraculously flowered and then filled out the stomach of each little grain, the past that felt so far away came surging back. Ia could hear her mother and father, voices trilling with excitement. The rice is almost ready, they would say. Come with us, let's go. At the farm, she could touch them again, almost. And there was the bitter sweetness. The rice brought her closer to them, while at the same time clarifying just how far away each of them really was. You don't speak Hmong, and Ia doesn't speak English. So for the six years that you spent reporting this story, you had to have an interpreter, a woman named Lor Zhang, and she was right there alongside you. What was that like to be interviewing someone and learning their story through an interpreter. I think it's important to understand how this was all taking place. I wasn't sitting at a table across from Ia with a microphone. It was really important to me that my work not take away from her work. And so what we did was she would continue working and I would work alongside her. So whether she's planting rice or harvesting rice or weeding, I was doing the same thing, following up, following alongside her. Laura would be with us holding the recorder and interpreting. It seemed unfair to ask Laura to also be, <laughs> also be picking <laughs> rice. Exactly, or weeding, um, you know, in the 100 degree heat. But Ian and I would be working and kind of the way you, you talk to a teenager in the car so you don't have to be looking at each other. There is just this sort of ease that comes from just being together. We did this over the course of five years, the three of us. And I think what we found was that the three of us created a really deep friendship through the course of this without even realizing it. My mouth every day says that I'm going to go and try to control the weed, but, you know, my hand's not controlling the weed. So I have best intention every day that I'm going to go and control that. In these recordings of you talking to Ia in the field, we can hear a lot of laughing between the two of you, between Ia and interpreter Lore. What was it like to work day in and day out on a farm next to someone who had done it their whole life and you're there trying to do her work? It was hard. It was, I mean, it's hard work to begin with. Even if you know what you're doing, it's regularly of at least 100 degrees during the summer in Fresno. And um, unless you get there before the sun rises, it, there's no shade. And um, so it's hard, it's hard work. Over six years, I did learn how to harvest rice pretty well. Some people even, you know, some friends of hers who would come to work on the farm would see me there and they'd be like, and they would say to her in Mong, they would say, how does she know how to do that? <laughs> but early on, you know, I would be harvesting rice that wasn't ripe and putting it in the bundle with the mature rice. And, um, and you know, Ia is... Um, she's a powerful woman who knows what she wants, but she's also, um, she has a tender heart and she's a mother and a grandmother. She's a shaman. She's a leader in the community and she knows how to, she knows how to speak gently. And so she would sort of, you know, gently say, um, you only want to cut the ones that are fully brown. You know, you see the green there. Don't cut that. 
And um, so it was, a, it was a learning process the whole way. How is the field really a congregating place for the Hmong people? And what happens there other than the picking of the product? It is amazing after months, you know, from April through into the end of August, the farm is just the farmers, Ia and whoever's helping her that day, usually relatives. In the end of September, when the rice begins to mature, the farm comes alive. People just start appearing. There are people who are ready to work for Ia, people who want to buy the rice. The rice field, it's this little, like, postage stamp within Fresno that brings people back, eating the rice, certainly, but just being in a rice field again. So the community comes out. They congregate in these informal ways. Sometimes, Ia will be there working, and she will hear singing in the field. And she'll find that it's a woman who has come to sing to the rice, whether it's, you know, one of the women working for her to help harvest or a complete stranger. For Hmong people, and particularly women, singing is a way of sort of unburdening themselves, bringing their troubles outside of themselves. And the rice acts as a sort of listener. And um, it's quite beautiful to witness. Given the fact that Ia can't read, she can't write, she only speaks Hmong, she doesn't speak English, how are you going to deliver your book, her story, to her and make it accessible to her? Well, that is, it is the great disappointment of this project that after five years in the field, seven years of reporting and writing, Ia's story is now a book that um, people who speak and read English have access to. Ia still doesn't have access to it. So I promised her and, and really myself that I would raise the money to have it translated into Hmong and then recorded as an audiobook, which I intend to distribute for free. When Ia can finally listen to this story, then the book will be complete. She's such an inspiring character. Thank you for capturing her. Thank you. That's Lisa Hamilton. She's an author and a photographer based in California. Her new book that traces Ia's story is The Hungry Season, A Journey of War, Love, and Survival. (laughs) 
And now we're heading to a different farm as we make a stop in our Hidden Gem series where we take you to out-of-the-way spots all across the Golden State. Miles and miles of fragrant orchards spreading in a vista of never-ending loveliness under sunny spring skies hold promise of rich treats to come. Today we're headed to one of the last remnants of what was once known as the Valley of Heart's Delight. Crunchy almonds, luscious cherries, sun-ripened apricots, mellow pears, purple grapes, and sugar-sweet prunes grown in the rich Santa Clara Valley provide superb fruit for the most epicurean taste. Sadly, many of those orchards have been paved over to make room for homes and tech campuses. In fact, in San Jose, there's only a very small fraction of farmland left. KQED's Daphne Young takes us to one of the last working orchards in San Jose. As I exit Carter Avenue off Highway 85, I find nestled in between the freeway and a cul-de-sac of homes, an urban family farm that's been growing crops since 1945. Today, it's within a short drive of Silicon Valley megagiants like Google, Microsoft, and Apple. But the JMP Cosentino farm started back when this region was still known as the Valley of Heart's Delight. I never knew this was all back here, actually. I would always come to their fruit stand, but I had no idea that it was this big. Christy Scarlato and her husband Steve live just a few blocks away, and they often come to the Cosentino fruit stand. But she's never checked out the two-acre urban farm behind the fruit stand until today. She's marveling at the rows and rows of fruit trees. What a gem. You don't see this here anymore. I mean, I grew up in Santa Clara, and there were orchards back when I was a little kid, but now you don't see this anymore. On the day of my visit, about 100 other people were there to take part in a tour of the 80-year-old farm, led by Jason Cosentino, who's come back to help run the family business. A former chef for Google, he's also created a line of jams and bottled sauces, like the one that soon became my favorite. Oh my goodness. Blackberry mm-hmm. barbecue So sauce. a lot of tang. I like a t- uh, sweet tang. Uh, t- so it's great on pork, great on chicken, great on beef. Well, that is delicious. Right? Mmm. We continued to eat our way through this amazing orchard while walking on a layer of crunchy mulch, which is laid down by hand each year to help the rows of trees grow. To identify as we're walking through the farm, uh, peach and nectarines have a very similar leaf pattern. Uh, versus apricot tree right there. Mm-hmm. They have more of a ha- uh, heart shape. Uh, and so What makes this orchard plant. so special is that every tree was planted by Jason's grandfather, Phil Cosentino. Back in the day, the elder Cosentino put in apricots, plums, prunes, nectarines, apples, figs, bushberries, persimmons, grapes, and so much more. And he's still working the farm these days in his 90s sharing memories with visitors about the time when this was the Valley of Heart's Delight. Occasionally, people, the first-timers here, they say, this is a funny place for a farm. I say, no, this is a funny place for homes, because years ago, there were no homes there. It was all farms, just like this, for far as the eye can see in any direction. This is the way the valley was. It was orchards. The only industry that was in, in San Jose was agriculture, in one way or another. The Cosentino family farm was originally 10 acres, but shrunk to around two acres after the freeway was built in the 1980s. In 1984, they took the land and called it eminent domain, and then we left with the two acres. But we are making a commitment to this day that this is our last two acres, and we're sticking our foot down, and it's not going anywhere. 
Jason says what helped him to survive on these last two acres is that his grandfather, Phil, decided to plant double the number of trees they originally had. Now they've got more than 600 trees with 90-plus different varieties of fruit. There's only five trees that is original from my great-grandfather that he planted in the early 1950s, I say 1952. One of them is this paper shell almond tree. The elder Cosentino tells the group about what they're harvesting next. Well, we still have grapes, uh, late grapes, and lots of figs. And then the next uh, type of fruit will be citrus. You know, we have, uh, I don't know, six or eight citrus mandarin trees. And those last uh, from December, gosh, almost to May. Meanwhile, I'm still taste testing. I try juicy pluots, persimmons, pomegranates, and yes, even prunes. Now you, you pick that and taste that. If you haven't had a fresh prune, let me know what you think. Oh my goodness. It kind of tastes like a peach almost. Nothing like a traditional prune. Nothing like you would taste <laughs> Wow. Jason even gives me a lesson on the best way to pick a fig right off the tree. So what you want to do is you want to take the fig and you actually want to pull against where the stem is coming out. So you want to pull left and up. Left and up. I'm testing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> left and up. And I'm not the only one whose mouth is watering. Christy Scarlato is digging into the samples too. Oh my gosh. I come back at least twice a week for the peaches and the plums. Yeah, it's so good. In fact, I come, I've come about four times to get the peaches so because I make a peach crisp. And it's incredible. Incredible, yes. Diana Jonathans came over from Campbell to check out the tour. Just because it's such a uh, unique experience here in the valley to, to visit a, a local farm, taste the produce, hear about the stories, um, Really a gem. Steve Scarlato says he remembers the supermarkets the Cosentino family owned for more than 60 years in San Jose, Silver Creek, and Santa Clara. Yeah, I grew up just three streets down from here. So I always, always knew this was here, and then I remember the Constantino supermarkets, but never been in here, and it's just amazing. I wish there were more places like this. The Cosentino supermarkets closed back in 2011, and now the family just focuses on the farm. The year-round orchard and farm stand sits right off the freeway in San Jose, and it's a trip your taste buds will be glad you made. I know mine were happy. On my drive back home as I'm inhaling figs, grapes, and yes, even prunes, I begin singing Dionne Warwick's classic, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. You bet I do. That's KQED's Daphne Young with a story for our Hidden Gem series. If you have a California hidden gem you want to share, drop us a note at calreportmag at kqed.org. That's calreportmag at kqed.org. Hey there, it's Sasha Koka. I'm popping in this week to tell you about an exciting event we've got coming up. You might have heard our series Mixed, Stories of Mixed Race Californians, all about the complexities and joys of growing up multiracial. 
Well, we've got a live show coming up celebrating mixed race voices, including KQED's Marisa Lagos, dancer Megan Lowe, Top Chef contestant Nelson Herman, storyteller Shy Barefoot, and filmmakers W. Kamau and Melissa Bell. It's November 9th at KQED in San Francisco. Join us. You can get your tickets at kqed.org live. That's kqed.org live. And that's it for the California Report magazine. Sasha Koka is our editor this week. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our director producer. Our engineer is Brendan Willard. Olivia Zhao is our intern. We had production help from Izzy Bloom and Jessica Carissa. I'm Leslie McClurg. Sasha Koka will be back as host next week. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.